Welcome to Pixelate Radio on the web at getpixelated.com. That's getpixel, the number eight, ed.com. Now, here's your host, Craig Shoemaker. Welcome back to Pixelate. Today, it's my pleasure to bring you Jesse James Garrett, co-founder and president of Adaptive Path. You know Jesse, he's the guy who coined the term Ajax. He's going to tell us a little bit about what it's like to be involved in some projects that have been so influential in our industry. For show notes, please head over to getpixelated.com slash shows slash Garrett. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T. And if you've got email, please send it to show at getpixelated.com. So it's been an interesting week. I guess I can throw out all my plans for redesigning the Yahoo homepage. Yeah, I know. All right, well, some of the things we actually are going to talk about today are, well, for one, is the Potter Skinning Competition. Now, Josh Smith has got this set up over at his website, and basically, if uh, if you win the contest, he's going to take you out to dinner at a really nice steakhouse, which I like. Uh, you also get uh, a copy of Net Advantage, which is, is definitely very cool. You, I'll interview you here on Pixel 8 if you win, um, but really what you get a chance to do is is contribute to an application that the, the user experience has, has been done really well. It's architected in such a way that you can create a skin um, that'll really wow people. And I, I love this this application. I mean, this is something where if you're going to be listening to podcasts on your computer, it's going to start immediately. You can star favorites. You know, it's just, uh, it, it's it's been designed well. And it's not, and seriously, I'm, I'm telling you, it's not just because I work with Josh and Grant who did some of the initial designs. So get in on the fun and and design a skin for Potter and, and see what you come up with. And, and hopefully you'll win the, the steak dinner. For all the details, head on over to shrinkster.com slash XRJ, and you can read all about it. Now, the Blend team recently put out an update to the Deep Zoom Composer. And what they explain is, is that before there were there was a few hoops you had to go through to get everything working correctly. And this update really makes the experience for you as a developer a lot easier in order to integrate it into your application. If you want to check that out, head on over to shrinkster.com slash XRI. Now some news from the mothership. I want to send out some huge congratulations to Devin and Kathleen Rader. Kathleen recently gave birth to their baby Kyle and uh, they are at home spending some family time. This is their first child and, and as, as you may know, they're in for a lot of fun. So I'm just glad to know that everybody's happy and healthy. And Devin and Kathleen, congratulations. Now to make things even sweeter for Devin, Scott Guthrie announced on his blog today that uh, Amazon.com was running a sale on ASP.NET 3.5 and that it's becoming a hugely popular and very successful book over at Amazon.com, beating out Harry Potter and whatnot. There is a page on Amazon's website that shows the best sellers and it's updated hourly. And I'm counting down, and Devin's book, Professional ASP.NET 3.5, is the is the fifth best-selling book in all of Amazon. So adding to your family and having a widely successful book, it just doesn't get any better than that. And the last bit of Infragistics news, we recently released the WinForms test advantage for IBM Rational Functional Tester. Uh, you can find all the information about it at shrinkster.com slash XRG. And one last link I want to share with you is my mix coverage that I've been doing. If you head on over to shrinkster.com XRH, you can watch an interview that I did with Lou Carbone. 
user experience guru talking about um, one of my favorite questions, and I even ask our, our guest here today, how can software developers learn to create better user experiences? I have an interview with Josh Jacobson where he gives us a demo of the new Yahoo Instant Messenger built in WPF. And they've got some little nice touches added into the user experiences of the, the Yahoo Messenger. And finally, I have a video that demonstrates uh, some of the stuff that we saw from the Microsoft Surface table that was there in the, the Open Space Sandbox. Like I said, the show notes for this show are at getpixelated.com slash shows slash Garrett. Please do stop by there because there's a video that is definitely worth watching in the show notes. Um, we talk about it a little bit in the interview, and it's the Philips Ambient Window. And it's the whole idea that you can go into a room and scan your 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 fingers across this window and change the the tones and the colors that come into the room, as well as what you see outside the window. And it's it's pretty amazing. So um, so check that out. Well, now that you've got all your resources, why don't you sit back, relax, enjoy the conversation I had with Jesse James Garrett from Adaptive Path about being involved in Ajax, visual vocabulary, and the elements of user experience. Jesse, thank you so much for, for joining us on the show today. Why don't you kick us off a little bit by telling us a bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Jesse James Garrett, and I am co-founder and president of a company called Adaptive Path. We are uh, an experienced design consulting firm based in San Francisco. We've done a lot of work with tech companies, both here in San Francisco and the Silicon Valley area, as well as in other parts of the world. Um, and I think that a lot of people know us because of the work that we've done with web-based startups that are really kind of on the leading edge of what's going on on the web right now. Some of the companies that we've worked with have been companies like Flickr and Blogger and BitTorrent and so on, uh, as well as, you know, great big enterprise companies that we, uh, we've done work for as well. Now, you've had a chance to be involved in some, I guess you'd say, projects that have ended up being pretty influential on the web and, and just in, in software design, the elements of user experience, the visual vocabulary, and Ajax. What's it like being involved with concepts that seem to resonate so well with people? Well, you know, it's a funny thing. I mean, it, uh, a lot of the stuff that I've done is really um, stuff that I created for my own purposes, you know, because I had a problem that I was trying to solve. Uh, you know, when I was uh, uh, early in my career uh, working on websites and, and working as part of web development teams, I, I found that I needed a way to communicate both with the people that I had to collaborate with on a day-to-day -day basis, as well as with the, um, the business people, basically the people who were paying the bills, uh, communicate with them about the, uh, all the considerations that went into designing a website and to kind of help them understand that it's not just about what color the nav bar is or where the buttons go. Um, and out of my uh, need to communicate that to other people, I ended up creating this model that I called the elements of user experience. And it seemed to be working pretty well for me, so I went out and put it up on the web, and other people started using it. And uh, it kind of took on a life of its own. So it's been this really interesting thing to see, in that case, something that was really something I created in the moment as something that I personally was going to use, become a tool that was really widely used by other people. And that pattern has kind of repeated itself. You know, the visual vocabulary, which is um, a diagramming system that I created 
for documenting my information architecture and interaction design work was another thing that I put up on the web, and now people all, all over the place are using it. <laughs> so it's just, uh, it, it's just kind of been this pattern of trying to solve my own problems and uh, discovering kind of by happy accident that that happened to have been a problem that a lot of other people were trying to solve as well. <laughs> now, it, it seems like you have a real knack for like looking at these things and, and breaking them down in a certain way and communicating them well. Is Can you point to me, is there a certain process that you use or is it just kind of emerge out of what seems to you as, as common sense or... Well, I, I, you know, these things don't follow a consistent pattern in terms of how they come about. I mean, I, I think that with with elements, it was something that I uh, actually took a couple of whacks at trying to find a way to to visually depict and articulate the the interrelationships between all of the uh, considerations in our um, in user experience design. It was actually something that I that I took a couple of stabs at and kind of gave up on and had forgotten about for a couple of months and then came back to. And when I came back to it with a fresh perspective, I was able to, to come up with a visualization that really worked for me. In the case of the visual vocabulary, that's something that's a little bit more, it was more of a gradual evolution as I would find myself in the middle of trying to solve a particular design problem and, and realizing that I didn't really have the tools to describe the experience that I was that I really wanted the product to have and as those situations would come up I would add new things to the system that would allow me to, to, to give me a richer vocabulary really to be able to uh, describe those experiences. Ajax was something that was really kind of the product of some specific time pressure that I was under in that I had worked on this project where we had prototyped uh, an AJAX application, uh, although we didn't really have a name for the pattern at the time, but we had this idea about this application, which was implemented mostly in JavaScript and did a lot of communication back to the server that was invisible to the user. So we built this prototype. We we talked to all the technology folks at our client and got them excited about the idea. We did some user testing of the prototype. The users loved it. Now all we had to do was convince the executives to uh, cough up the money <laughs> to actually build the whole system. The important part. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and one of the really kind of crucial things for them was to help them understand why this was so different from what they had been doing up to that point. Hmm. And I knew that uh, there was no way I could dive into a deep technical ex explanation of asynchronous communication and how that impacts the user experience. So I, I figured if I had one word that could uh, kind of wrap up this whole complex uh, set of technologies and concepts, that that might be a way that I could more effectively communicate uh, with these people who were signing the checks. And that's uh, really how Ajax came about. And again, I started writing about it on the web, and it turned out that other people had recognized that pattern but hadn't had a name for it, and, uh, and that's how that whole Ajax thing took off. So at what point did you realize how big the the name was becoming? Well, it's funny. I actually wrote the essay about Ajax that went up on the Adaptopath website in uh, February of 2005. And I was actually in a hurry to get it done because I had to leave the country. So I hurried up, finished the essay, get it up on the website, and then I flew to Japan for two weeks. And during the time that I was in Japan, my internet access was uh, was really very limited, and I wasn't checking my email <laughs> at all. 
And so I get back to the United States a couple of weeks later, and I got this avalanche of email from people all over the world who are excited about this concept, and they want to learn more about it, and they want to know if they can buy some from me, and and all of this crazy stuff that was going on. Uh, it all kind of happened very fast and, and really kind of caught me off guard. I think it caught everybody off guard. Yeah, it was it was weird to see how fast it took off. Well, it was. I think it was because the, the the moment for it was really right. It was something that gradually people were putting bits and pieces of the puzzle together, and the, and it, the overall direction of web application development was starting to become clear. Right. That if you uh, that if you kind of you looked at those threads that were happening and you kind of followed them through to their logical conclusion, this is where you ended up. So did your client uh, ask for a refund from all the goodwill that uh, you and the company got from? <laughs> well, the um, the client's been able to, uh, I think, make great strides with the um, with the Ajax work that we started there. So, uh, so I think that they got their money's worth. <laughs> That's cool. Now, talking about uh, the, the elements of user experience book. When you were creating the the different pieces of, of of the puzzle here, how did you crystallize your thinking around the elements? Because some of them seem pretty obvious, and and then some of them are kind of like it's like once you see it, it makes sense, but not everything is is completely apparent. Yeah, well, it's um, uh, what I was really trying to do was uh, figure out as we were really kind of knee deep in the web development process what I was seeing on the projects that I was working on was that we would get really deep into the process where we would, uh, uh, we would have a lot of things that were um, kind of already wrapped up and um, resolved, we thought, and then we would get uh, really kind of close to the end of implementation and we'd be looking at kind of how all the pieces were coming together and go, oh, wait a minute, we never thought about this, you know. Mm-hmm. We never, uh, uh, we didn't really think this aspect of the user experience through. And out of those kinds of uh, experiences, it became really apparent to me that um, uh, that we needed a common language for talking about um, the issues that we were facing and, and to help facilitate our planning to make sure that you know, okay, that uh, you've uh, you've got a, a, a solid information architecture, but is that founded on solid content requirements? Do you really know what all the pieces are that need to go into the application before you get to the end of the process and discover, oh, there's this really important thing that we left out that now we have to put it back in, which is going to extend our timeline. But not only that, it has this kind of cascade effect where there are a million other things about the application that now all have to change as well. Well, has your thinking changed at all on, on since you published this work? Would you add anything? or uh, it, was, it was published in 2002, so where have you gone in this, this direction since then? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because 2002 was, was a curious time for the web because the, you know, the boom had just kind of subsided with the, uh, the dot-com crash of 2001. But at the same time, it was at around this time, shortly thereafter, that a lot of the uh, projects 
that that we now think of as being kind of these definitive Web 2.0 projects were really starting to get underway. So it really wasn't. Uh, people think of it as being this great big gap between the first wave of, of web innovation and the second wave, but that's not really what happened. What, what happened was that the second wave of innovation wasn't really coming out of big companies and startups. The second wave of innovation was coming from hobbyists. It was coming from individuals tinkering around with the technology in their spare time. I mean, you, you look at a site like Flickr. You look at a site like Delicious. You look at uh, projects, even a project like Blogger was, uh, <laughs> it was just this little side project, you know, that was something that they were doing in between working on the thing that was really going to make them money. So it was out of this, these little side projects, these experiments, that we as an industry started to get a, a, a collective understanding of how the web could continue to evolve. And so kind of being aware of all of this stuff that was, that was going on at that time, what I tried to do with the book was capture the aspects of web design and development that were least likely to change. You know, so many of these technology books come out and they are uh, totally relevant for about a year, a year and a half, and then they're not useful anymore because they make so many assumptions about the technology landscape. They make so many assumptions about, uh, about the sophistication of users and the sophistication of developers that the book kind of stops being relevant. It becomes an artifact of a particular time. Uh, but because the web was in such flux in 2002, I didn't really feel like there was a lot that I could rely on hmm. to be constant about the technology landscape. So I really tried to make it uh, make the book be about the principles that would not change or would change the least. So, you know, for example, uh, there are exactly two screenshots in the book, in the entire book. There are only two <laughs> screenshots. And both of those screenshots were already out of date before the book was published. So I wasn't trying to capture, you know, how to create a great website for 2002. I was really trying to, to capture, here are the things about web development that are going to endure no matter what's going on with technology. Hmm. Well, talking about progress and, and the continuum, what do you see as emerging changes in, in user experience? Is, is there anything that you see that's, that's being de-emphasized and, and other things that are being more emphasized? Well, there's so much stuff going on right now. I mean, I think that for the user experience designers that, that I talk to, the conversations that people get the most kind of excited about are when we start talking about um, uh, really what's going on with hardware the, um, and the opportunities that that opens up for interaction design. Uh, you look at something like the touchscreen on the iPhone. Interaction designers instantly, they just, they're, the, the imagination runs wild with all the things that we could do with, with a multi-touch display, uh, especially if you start looking at large-scale multi-touch displays. I don't know if you've seen any of CNN's election coverage this year, but they, they've got this great big, like a 50-60-inch like a plasma multi-touch that is really interesting to look at because you can see a lot of indications of where UI is going with that. And then you've got kind of motion-sensitive technologies, like you look at something like the, uh, the controller for Nintendo's Wii, the game console, yeah. and there are people who are already working on ways to make the Wii a more generic input device for any kind of computer. So those kinds of things are uh, really exciting, the possibilities that, that are opened up.
Have you seen the, I saw something on the web for a, a device that Philips is working on to where you go into a hotel room and there's this, uh, a window that you can take your hand and put on it and, and draw pieces of your environment. So you, you draw a tree going across and then you can scroll through um, color palettes to give the, a different ambient light to the room. And then they have color, color therapy that you can sit in. and Yeah, so these, uh, these, uh, these translucent panels Translucent color panels is, is another technology that has a lot of implications, especially for kind of situated computing, computing that happens in a particular environment, that when you know something about the environment and you have uh, these kinds of display technologies at, at your disposal, uh, there are all kinds of possibilities that open up there as well. Hmm. So what's, what's new for you? What have you been focusing on lately? Well, we've been doing a fair amount of exploration of this kind of thing. Adaptive Path is an, as an organization has become kind of known for helping our clients see what's right around the corner and, and how they can evolve their um, their user experiences and, and in some cases even their business models to take advantage of the evolution of technology. And so we do we've been doing a lot of this sort of future forecasting, thinking about uh, thinking about where all this stuff is going on behalf of our clients, and they've been incorporating that into um, their product strategies. Interesting. It'd be fun to, to see what comes out of all that. Yeah, well, the, the downside of doing this uh, um, future forecasting work is that it takes a while for any of it to kind of come to fruition because it's got to go through product development cycles and, and you know, by definition, the future isn't here yet. So Right. <laughs> well, that's, and, and perhaps this isn't a question that you want to or can answer, but how do you look at deciding or, or seeing what the future will bring? Well, we try to cast as broad a net as we possibly can, um, looking at what's going on in software and hardware design, what's going on with business trends, social trends. We've done a lot of work that's been studying the patterns of use in emerging markets like mobile, those kinds of things. But then what you have to do is you, you, rather than, um, than just kind of being cheerleaders for the future, we want to um, we want to be skeptics as well. We want to uh, look at all of that through a lens of some uh, good old-fashioned common sense, and ask ourselves what do we think is really realistic about the way that uh, that things are going to work going forward. Yeah, it seems like it, it's it's probably the most interesting and the most gratifying work, especially when you get it right. Yeah, well, it's fascinating because even even the dead ends sometimes turn out to to be fruitful. You know, you. You start exploring ideas, and you might have an idea in one context that just doesn't work at all. But when you uh, take that idea and apply it in a completely different context, mm. you know we have such a diverse range of clients. We've worked with financial services companies, and banks, and insurance companies, and big tech companies like Microsoft and Intel, as well as these small, young, nimble startups. And being able to draw on all of the experience that we have across all of these different clients, and, and kind of cross-pollinate is really fruitful and really rewarding for us. Hmm. A question that I like to ask, particularly people in, in your position, is that a lot of people who are going to be listening to this show are you know, software developers, oftentimes people who don't have experience in design or, or whatever, but they're tasked with building a user interface. What would you tell a hardcore developer about what they could do about improving a user experience? I think that the, the biggest stumbling block for developers in doing design work is how much they know 
about technology. That knowledge actually becomes uh, something that gets in the way of their ability to see the experience that they're delivering. Because when they look at the interface, they don't just see the interface. They, in their mind, they can see how it's all wired together and how all the, the underlying logic is working together to, uh, to deliver functionality. And the technologists that I've worked with that have been most successful in doing UI design work are the ones who could kind of switch all that stuff off, you know, and just look at the face that the application is presenting to the user and forget about what you know about how it works under the hood and ask yourself, does this make sense to people based on what I'm presenting? And is there a way that I can organize the interface? Great UI is not about making it shiny. Great UI is about making it work and making it something that people can understand. If, uh, if you've got an application that, uh, that people can just kind of read the surface of it and understand how to interact with it, that goes a long, long way, longer than, uh, than having the most, uh, most robust technology under the hood. Hmm. Making it kind of self-apparent of how to interact with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sir, that's a show. I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's been a pleasure. Absolutely. I'm happy to do it. Now, before we close everything off here, I just want to read you a couple entries from Jesse's blog. Now, Jesse's blog isn't like most people's blogs. Now, the best way to describe it is that, uh, well, they're all they're aphorisms. They're short, pithy statements that have a, a, a lot of underlying meaning and sometimes some, some double entendre. Let me just read you a couple here. Trying to understand people by analyzing data is like trying to understand the shape of something by looking at its shadow. Another post is, most people will tolerate a degree of impracticality in exchange for a measure of fun. And finally, he's got one here that I think relates really well to what we were just talking about at the end of the interview. And that's people who talk about the future are judged for their imagination and not their accuracy. Well, thanks a lot for checking out the show. This is Craig Shoemaker, and we will talk soon. Pixelate Radio, on the web at getpixelated.com. That's getpixel8ed.com. All rights reserved, copyright 2008. Infragistics, powering the presentation layer. Infragistics.com.